Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today joined by Gav Buckland and Dave Prentice as we reflect on a different decade. We are going back to the 90s after the success and the popularity of our two-part 80s pod with Dave and Gav. And fans and listeners were asking for us to go into a different decade, and suggestions came in for the 90s, and we have picked that up. And today is the first of two pods on the 90s, and very much in the in the same uh, fashion as looking at the 80s one, where we look at the sides that before the success and the sides after the success. And, of course, in the 90s, the one and only success was, of course, the FA Cup victory in 95. So today we go from the 1st of January 1990 up until the appointment of Joe Royal because, obviously, we know what came after that. But um, as we started the first of the 80s pods, chaps, pop quiz, 1st of, of January, uh Luton at home, two-one victory. But where did it put us in the league? You know what? I have absolutely no recollection of that game whatsoever. Uh, whether that was because it was a New Year's Day hangover or something, I don't know. Normally, I remember New Year's Day games, but that one, not in the slightest. I would guess tail end of Collins' regime, poor his eighth or ninth. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, that occurred on I think before Christmas. Um... After being top of the table, so I'm with Prano. I'll go. I'll go with eight. Correct. Bang on the oh. money. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you see, that, that's why you have us on these podcasts, Phil. You know what I mean? Useless trivia. That's why you're both here. Yeah. All of just useless. Yeah. So uh, let's let's rewind back a little. We're starting this pod on the first of January, of course, but. Um, what was the situation, you know, just, just as a quick reminder, we finished that 80s pod. Um, Colin Harvey was still in charge. Um, going into the new decade, was he, what was his position? Um, what was his position and what was the shape of the team as, as, as we went into the 90s? I, I thought... Go on. I, I think his position was solid. I don't think anybody had, you know, any concerns about his job security at that time. But clearly, the squad itself was in need of a significant makeover. I think, as we said last time, a lot of the players who've been so influential uh, in the eighties were beginning to get a little bit long in the tooth. Some of them had been affected by injury aging. Heath obviously had that, you know, awful knee injury. And I would suggest was never quite the same again after that. So recruitment was needed. And I was looking back at some of the players that, you know, Colin had bought in his, his final, you know, sort of full close season. And it was mixed. I mean, Mike Milligan was one of the guys that came in uh, in the summer of 1990 for like a million quid, which was like a decent sum of money at the time from Oldham. And he just wasn't anything like the quality of player of the players that, you know, he was replacing. And then Andy Hinchcliffe came in. Andy Hinchcliffe proved to be a very, very good signing. Unfortunately, I don't think he was ever Howard Kendall's cup of tea. And obviously, we know Howard came a little bit later 
uh, after that. So yeah, Scott was in need of major, you know, so enhancements, and it was mixed, mixed success, I think, you know, so in that you know summer of nineteen ninety, certainly. Because Gav, um, for for maybe younger listeners who um, didn't live through the eighties teams, but are familiar with the names, they looked at the, the, the Everton squad at the beginning of the nineties. They would still see names of players who had been who had had a lot of you know huge success at the football club. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> but as Penno says, that was the problem in mm. some respects. Yeah, I'd play. I mean, say, I mean, Kevin had been a great defender. Well, Kevin had Kevin done his hamstring at Sheffield Wednesday in 88 in, in, in one of those Marathon Cup games, I think the first one. And it was quite clear when he came back, he'd lost that little bit of pace. And he was probably closer to 30 himself. And Graham was closer to 30. Uh, and Mar- uh, Martin Keown had come in, hadn't he? I think maybe it's a little bit of a, a replacement for Kevin. And, and Martin, was a, Martin was a good player, I thought. He was a good man marker. Um, and that, that only added to this. We spoke about that click thing, didn't we, in the last podcast that was yeah. added at the end of the 80s. And those type of moves, when you've got senior players being replaced, but they're still at the club. And there's always that's always going to add a little bit of an edge. And obviously, you know, Martin, you know, fine player, as he turned out to be at Arsenal. Um, you know, that, that only added to that sort of dressing uh, room disquiet. And obviously we had the infamous Chinese restaurant uh, in some which kind of probably better place to talk about uh, than me. And uh, yeah, I think the way players there, Phil, but they, they needed replacing. And, the, you know, and Kevin Sheedy was still there. I'm not sure whether Kevin's and Colin's relationship was that brilliant at that time. So yeah, looking back, you think, oh, there's some big names there, but actually big names that have been there for a decade or a decade or more. And that was the problem replacing them. Uh, the season finished with a 3-3 draw um, home to Villa. The team finished sixth. It didn't. It doesn't feel like the worst platform for Colin to have built on. But Preno, as, as we as we move into that that following season, Colin only got thirteen games. And you mentioned at the start of of the pod, it was a mixed bag in that in that final summer of of, of transfers. Is that where it went wrong ultimately? Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, you know. So the quality of players coming in just wasn't anything like the quality of players that they were replacing, and even the players that looked, you know, ostensibly decent. I'm thinking of like, you know, so Pat Nevin. Tony Cotty started like a house on fire, but then, you know, so fell away, you know, so quite badly and was dropped, I think, about two or three months after he'd signed. Neil McDonald, you know, he was okay. He was actually player of the season, I think, 88-89, the Echo Man of the Match Awards that we dished out. But they just weren't anything like the quality of player that they were seeking to replace. And that was why we suddenly started slipping down the table from being the absolute best team in the country and in Europe by some way. We weren't quite reaching those marks and Arsenal was stealing a march on us. Um, you know, so Liverpool won the league in 1990. Um, we couldn't quite replicate what we'd had gone before. And we were starting to slide, you know, ever so perceptibly. First it was fourth, then it was sixth. The cup runs were ending, you know, in quarterfinals or, you know, Zenith Data Systems Cup finals or whatever. It wasn't quite, you know, so the, the level that we'd been used to. And we couldn't quite seem to get it right. And the start of that season, 91, 92, was a horrible start to the season. Um, I think it was uh, the one where Neville staged his famous sitting on the goalpost against Leeds because uh, he was getting frustrated. I think he got frustrated at the results and I tried to get out a few times. He put in transfer requests and uh, Colin just you know, backheeled and you know, out of hand, you're not going anywhere. I think he'd signed it was like an eight-year contract or something. It was a ridiculously yeah. long contract because he was so good. And uh, no one even knew what he'd done that day. 
I mean, we were 2 nil down at home to Leeds or 3 nil down at home to Leeds who just being promoted. A Leeds team that would go on to win the league in 1992. So they were a decent Leeds team, but no one really appreciated that. They just saw a side that had just come up. And it was 3 nil down. Uh, you know, so everybody really on edge and frustrated. And Neville got so irritated in the you know, dressing room at half-time. He just wanted to go and clear his head, he said. In true Neville tradition, he said, the only place he could think of to go and clear his head is to sit down in front of 40,000 people. <laughs> so he did. He marched out, sat on, went against the goalpost. And that was just Neville being Neville. I'm sure he did it to make a bit of a point, to make people aware of his frustration, even though he claimed he just wanted to clear his head. But poor Colin didn't know anything about it. It was only after the game when the press said, what do you make of your goalkeeper's behaviour? What are you talking about? And he had to actually ring him, you know, so the following morning, say, what was going on there? So the season started badly. And then it just never picked up. Just I think we lost, you know, sort of the first three games that season, drew a few games, you know, so just couldn't get any kind of run going. And it was probably a, a mercy sacking, if you like, you know, so when Colin finally lost his job, you know, it's quite early on. I think it was like late September, early October. Mm, 13 games in, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, so and I think it, it'd been coming. The pressure was building. And then, you know, so the media were beginning to speculate about his future, you know, so quite significantly. And, you know, we'll come on to it then. But, you know, so when, when Howard, you know, sort of did return, the, the sense of elation amongst Evertonians, I think, was huge at the time. But we'll get on to that. I mean, you know, so how do you think that season started, Gav? It, it, it was grim, wasn't it? That Leeds game, uh, yeah, it was shocking. We get beat three and a half time, ended up getting back to 3-2. Uh, I thought Nev was out of order, to be honest yeah, with you. And so did the supporters. I think I think there was a there was a I think we played Arsenal on the following home game. I think there was a banner that in the Gladys said that said once a bin man, always a yeah. bin man. Yeah. You know, so there was a lot of um a lot of sort of, you know, uh, aggression on and off the, you know, within the club, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of I think if you speak to some of the players or you read their accounts, there's a lot you know, there was a lot of uh, bit of mistrust going on amongst the squad about, you know, motives and things like that. You know, we had old players, younger players. Um and I think there was also Colin had started to as managed to do when he panicked, started to toughen up the team and you know, on the pitch we weren't pretty to watch either. So it wasn't a place playing great football and, you know, being unlucky. We were, you know, we were not playing like we would expect an Everton team to play, and we were just, we were just sliding into the abyss quite, quite quickly. Um, and you know, so we got to, I think we went to, it was a Sheffield United, still wasn't it in the, yeah. in the League Cup at the end of October, and in in, in the days when you know a League Cup game was hugely significant to a manager's future, yeah. and um, you know we, we all know what happened, but yeah, with Preno at that, it was just. Just a dreadful period, um, and we, we 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 I think we were 18th or something like that. Mm. Which for the club of Everton stature, where we'd been top six for the best part of the previous decade, was six or seven. That's that's not a great place to be. Just just as a bit of a context for for, for listeners again who who perhaps didn't live through the period, it, you know, finances is such a big part of football now, and and, and it establishes and re-establishes the elites, etc. Had there been a shift? In, in the teams with money at the turn of the decade? Were, were Arsenal and Leeds teams that you've mentioned, were they suddenly flush with cash and able to attract the better players that maybe once we had been able to? Yeah, I, I don't know about them being flush with cash, but certainly there being a big shift at Everton. And I don't really know quite why that was, you know, so whether we never really cashed in properly on the success that we'd had at the end of the 80s. 
Because being a club that in the summer of 1988 had spent an absolute fortune, you know, 2.2 million, a British record on Tony Cossey, as well as 900 grand on Pat Nevin and half a million on Neil McDonald and another million on Stuart McCall, to like 1990, 1991, where we were having to, we're still spending money, uh, but, you know, we we're having to, I don't know, watch the pennies a little bit more. Uh, there being shifts at boardroom level, you know, so we need to reference as well. Um, I think John Moore's was very, very old by this stage and was like ceasing to have, you know, so any kind of meaningful influence on the football club. And I think Dr. David Marsh had come in uh, as chairman round about then. And, you know, for a lovely fellow though he is, you know, so he wasn't really, you know, so a, a switched on football chairman. I mean, I know towards the end of that decade, he was collared by, uh, you know, so some of the, the press lads, you know, so trying to basically what's going on at Emerson Football Club. And it was almost like a rabbit in the headlights. He didn't know, you know, so quite, you know, so how to how to deal with them and how to answer them. Um, you know, so Sir Philip you know, was still around, but again, his influence didn't seem to be, you know, so quite the same. Uh, so now the club seemed to be on a downward slide, you know, so on and off the pitch at the start of the decade. Yeah, I think going back to your question, Phil, we touched on this last podcast. English football by 1990 was a completely different beast on the pitch to what it was. In '85, when you only had Liverpool to beat, in the late '80s you had Arsenal under George Graham. Ferguson was beginning to make his presence felt. He's won the cup, hadn't he, in '90? Um, you know, you had Leeds coming back up. He was good enough to win the title. Within 12 months, you got Jack Walker plunging all his millions, having it into Blackburn. Um, so you've got, and obviously you've got Liverpool, who are still still on the slide, but still obviously good enough to win the title in '90. So. The world of English football was completely different when Colin was under pressure at the end of ninety to what it was, say, when Howard was under pressure in in nineteen eighty three. Mm. And I think we need to see that that in context. And financially, you are right, because this was the time when the Premier League was going to be this when mm. we were one of the big five to form the Premier League. So although we may not have been cash rich, we we um we, we were one of the still one of the big players in English football. We were pushing, pushing for the, um, you know, for, for the changes in the game. Which I mean, that period where we are in football now all comes from this period we're talking about here, 1990, 91. Um, so it's we were struggling at a time of great change within English football. And money, you are right, was coming into the game. We had Michael Knight trying to change, take yeah. over Man United, hadn't we? Of course, so, yeah. All all of a sudden, you know, how would like to say this that. Never spoke about finances ever previously, but finances have now always spoken at a board level, every board meeting, you know. So I think Colin's problem in 90, and let's face it, um, this may be a familiar tale, is he'd spent too much money, not got it back in sales, and was now struggling to balance balance the books. Mm. And he had players on big wages who he couldn't get, <laughs> get rid of, you know, which, yeah. you know, I've never heard that story ever with Everton, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think that was part. Of, I think that's one of the reasons we struck financing because that's when it was Preno. You had gate, yeah. you make money, didn't you? Football, gate money, and any yeah. profits on transfers. Yeah, and if you struck, if you spent a fortune in transfers, then you know you you you, you as you say, and I think Lickwood's influence wasn't as great then financially. And so the, the club was going to always going to be struggling. Well, the, the one player that underlines, you know, so that argument entirely uh, was very early part of the decade, Morris Johnston, who was signed for one and a half million in 1991. 
And it was quite an exciting signing. It was a typical Howard Kendall signing in that he was a lively character on and off the pitch. And he hoped that he would bring that same kind of charisma and personality that Andy Gray had brought. Um, you know, a little bit of devil about him, uh, you know, to rub off on other players. And he was a decent player. He scored an average of about one in three, I think, one in four during his Everson career. But he never really had the impact that Howard had hoped. Ultimately so that in the summer of 1993, he had to let him go on a free transfer. And that was like a player who would like, one and a half million was a decent sum of money back yeah, then. And to, and to let him go for nothing to hearts only like, you know, sort of two years later, underlined the folly really of uh, our transfer recruitment at that yeah. time. So, so when, that, that just, to, just to finish off on that point, when we're looking at Evan in this period, Phil, certainly mm. 1992, his finances had a big part of it. We had limited amounts of money to spend because yeah. Colin had spent so much for very little reward over two years, two or three years, you know. So I was looking at the, the the incomings and outgoings of that, I think, summer of 1991. And it almost is like a changing of the guard. I mean, the players that left in that calendar year um, are some of the greatest names in the club's history. You know, so Kevin Sheedy, Graham Sharp, uh, you know, then Stuart McCall, who was one of the signings that Colin had bought, hadn't been successful. He went. Peter Beagree went. Pat Nevin, who'd only been signed a few years previously, went on loan to Tranmere. Mike Milligan, who Howard, who Colin had signed and Howard just didn't fancy at all, was bombed out straight away. They all left. And the incomings weren't bad. I mean, Peter Beardsley was signed in the summer of 1991. That was inspirational. Beardsley was magnificent for two seasons. And again, Colin uh, Howard let him go far too soon. Mark Ward was signed. Mark Ward was a decent signing. And I know we're going to move on towards, uh, you know, so the germination of the Joe Royal FA Cup team. Matt Jackson was signed, a young kid from Luton Town, who, you know, so no one knew anything about, uh, but, you know, so quite a big reputation. And then Morris Johnston and Gary Ablett. Gary Ablett was another, you know, sort of inspired signing. So it was a significant shift. The old guard were definitely being moved away and uh, we're getting new faces coming in all the time. But the argument still persists. Those new faces weren't quite at the level of your Kevin Judy, Billy Graham shots. Absolutely not. So Colin's under pressure, isn't he? When he goes to Sheffield United and we uh, we get beat up with 2 1 midweek yeah. game of a Wednesday. And then I think he got he got the bullet on the night, I think, or early morning, didn't he? I think he knew the game was up by then. It was early morning. I remember Ken Rogers at the Echo, yeah. you know, so we were talking to him. What's happening today? And he says, look, I'm going to go down and see Colin, but, you know, so I need to ask him if he's going to resign because he thought things were so, you know, so bad at that time. And anyway, by the time he'd got down to Belfield, he actually had actually been sacked. So Yeah, it, it, I mean, yeah. and I think that those, Phil, obviously we've been doing Roy Blue, we must have changed four or five managers in the last <laughs> five years. Yeah. Those were the days when, if ever changed the manager, yeah, it was a massive event. I mean, we were yeah. never a club. I mean, we always give managers time. We never got a club. We would change a manager every 12 months, two years. Yeah. We, we, we always give managers. So, for Colin, especially given his leg, you know, his, his relationship with Evan, his reputation, was a massive thing. Even though it was expected in some respects, it's still a massive thing to sack an Everton manager then. Massive story. Yeah, yeah. Interesting how we obviously we went through the, uh, you know, the stability of Moyes and then we've come back to that, that period, haven't we? But, um, yeah. As, as Preno said, um, um, Jimmy Gabriel took uh, one game in charge, won 3 0. Everything Chris was Parker Rangers, remember it well. Yeah, I remember, I, remember, I remember Jimmy actually taking over that game and sitting behind the desk at Belfield and going, Oh my God, this is like being in charge of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> 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 but, you know, he did well, he won his only game 3 0. So, yeah. yeah, and then 
Preno, I'll stay with you, mate, because as you said, Howard returned, and and, that, and I think you alluded to it, but my, oh, my wow. question was be was obviously what was the reaction? Elation, genuine elation, because Howard had come back from Spain to Manchester City and done a really good job at Manchester City. Uh, they'd been you know, struggling against relegation and he turned them round. They were going in the right direction. I remember it so clearly. It's one of those where were you moments. And there used to be a, a post office in the middle of town um, in the Whitechapel near that area. And I was actually in that post office, you know, so when I heard somebody say, oh, my God, just heard on the radio, pre-internet, pre-Wi-Fi, all that. Howard Kendall's come back. So I, I was in the back of a huge queue. I don't know what I was doing there. I just left and legged it straight back to the office. It was absolutely thrilling news. And uh, at the time, we had a news editor at the Daily Post called Simon Reynolds, who was an absolutely diehard Manchester City fan. And he was mortified. He actually wanted to go down to Goodison Park and kill Howard Kendall. You know, he was, he was talking about, you know, sort of going down there and c- campaigning and protesting because he'd done such a great job at City. But, you know, he came out with that famous quote at the time. You know, yeah, it was a love affair with Man City, but I'm married to Everton. With Everton, it's a marriage. And that was Howard to a T. Cute little, you know, sort of phrase for the media. But equally, a manager who'd achieved incredible things with us only, you know, so three or four years previously. So we were absolutely thrilled to see him come back, thrilled. And then obviously Colin was appointed as number two again, you know, so the, you know, the old guard that had been in place only a couple of years previously, back in place again. But Yeah, it's, it's, I remember where I was. Well, actually, I found out the, the complete old-fashioned way on CFAX. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, come, I come in from where, stick, right. stuck the telly on. And it's just Howard Kendall returned to heaven. And I literally, you know, open-mouthed. But like you, related. Yeah. With Colin coming back as well. I mean, Colin is the surprise one. I mean, because yeah. what you've got to remember, I mean, Howard wasn't necessarily the first choice. I think the first choice was Ron Atkinson, wasn't he? And yeah. yeah, Ron Ron was the first choice. And um, he wouldn't leave Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and then the opinion was that Joe was going to be the manager. Yeah. And I think the expert, if you if you'd have put odds on the sixth of November nineteen ninety, whatever it was, the fifth of November, I can't remember exactly. Uh, he was going to walk into the Everton boardroom as manager tonight. I think you would have put all your money on Joe Royal, and then Howard turns up. But Howard said, didn't he? Phil, this is this is like going back to your point. It was a different club then, and Prano alluded to it. You know, the boardroom is different. The club, the club had always operated, hadn't it? In the successful years, the, the, the great triumvirate of Bill Carter, Howard, and somebody you mentioned last week, Prano, or last podcast, who doesn't get enough credit, Jim Greenwood, who's Jim Greenwood, club secretary. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, you know, they ran the club between them. And so if Howard wants anything to do it, Jim had always sorted out with, sorted out for, sorted out for him. So as you say, what the board Jim uh, did then, because like Desmond Pitty was there and like David Marshes. I think it was a bit more bureaucracy at boardroom level, wasn't it? Where in the past, I would have just been used to running the club with, with, with their gym and filler. To get things done, took a lot more people, uh, you know, to, to decide on things. And I think that Howard noticed that straight away. It wasn't the same boardroom that he was coming into, what he left in 87. Well, he found and that out Jim, two years later, but we'll get on to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And Jim, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's where we're coming to, isn't it? Jim, yeah. Jim was a great team. Jim, and with all due respect to the people who went before him and afterwards, A, he doesn't get enough credit. He sadly passed away a few years ago, didn't he? But he's easily the best administrator ever, I've ever had at that level in terms of getting things done, you know. And he was fa- he was fantastic. And I think what happened was as well, his power diminished because the board had changed. Yeah. And Howard, Howard was always operating 
uh, within those restrictions. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Phil, we're talking about money. He, he tried to sign Ian Rush, didn't he, Howard? Yeah, yeah. He tried to sign Ian Rush. He had talks to Ian Rush. And he tried to sign George Yati, didn't he? I think he was at Real Madrid, but it was too much money. Yeah. Uh, he actually went over to Spain with uh, Jim Greenwood uh, to sign sign him, which would have been a great you know, George Yati playing for Everton, you know. Um, <laughs> so the, ga- the game had changed. Howard had changed as well. And that, that, that was the thing, wasn't it, which he never realised is... is Howard and Colin, the first time was a was a um, was like a you know straightforward relationship. But when they come back, Howard had been managing away. Colin had been manager. So the dressing room dynamics are different, aren't they? Colin's the coach with players who's previously managed. You know, which is uh, which is which is a strange strange thing, isn't it? In the dressing room, which was already had its problems. Yeah. Apparently, you spoke about how he's returned and that he'd done an excellent job at City. Um, was there any sense that he'd changed as a manager? The, the situation at Everton had changed around him and, as Gav says, he'd walked into a different football club with different yeah. dynamics. Had Howard changed at all? Had, had, had Bill Bow uh, altered his perception of management or, or, or did he have to just, did he just kind of walk back into, into Everton and, 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 and have to adapt to a different way of doing things? Yeah. I don't think he changed, but I think as Gavin mentioned earlier, you know, the landscape of English football had changed quite significantly. And uh, he was still the same manager. He still had the same approach to the game. Um, He tried to, as he always did at a football club, he always said, Howard, when he came into a club, he tried to assert his authority immediately uh, by making an example of somebody, by, you know, sort of pulling up a player and just making them aware of who was in charge. I think poor old Mike Milligan was the player that, you know, so he decided was going to be the one he would uh, assert that authority on. And he didn't fancy him as a player. And uh, he'd actually told, like, the press, uh, you know, one afternoon, he says, yeah, yeah, we'll be looking to move Mike Milligan on. And um, some of the press lads said to him, well, what if he doesn't want to leave? And he goes, don't worry, lads. When he's playing at uh, Morecambe on a Friday night in the A-team, he'll want to leave. <laughs> and uh, he, he did. And I think that was, might have been a famous game because Tony Cotty had been dropped as well. The other player <laughs> yeah. play that Howard wasn't sure about. And Tony Cotty played in that game in the A-team on a Friday night at Morecambe. And uh, yeah, I think John Keith of the Express was very friendly with Tony Cotty and he had a chat with him and uh, he revealed to him that, oh yeah, God, it was a real come down for me. I was actually playing against my milkman and, uh, his milkman <laughs> played the and so John used that. It was a lovely line, used it in the paper. Anyway, Howard saw it and he thought it was uh, Tony belittling, you know, so some of the players that he was playing with by, you know, sort of using a story like that. And so he finds him, he did, you know, one of his uh, famous Chinese, you know, sort of meal get togethers, which Tony Cotty had to foot the bill for. So yeah, he, he came in to a lot of players that he wasn't immediately you know sort of happy with he wanted to try and make changes as quickly as possible and Howard was like that he was a great real idea in the transfer box he loved you know sort of bringing in players moving players on but they never really quite worked out you know he bit by some very very successful players but equally some of the other players he brought in weren't quite as successful and maybe that little magic touch in the transfer market wasn't quite there that he'd had you know so in the mid 80s Sorry, Phil, I think the transfer market had changed as well. So Howard was able to buy Derek Manfield from Sammy, wasn't he, in 82, wasn't he, or Kevin Seedy from Liverpool Reserves. In 91, you couldn't do that. That that type type of market had changed. So those those players weren't available anymore. And and when you were struggling, um, you know, that, that, that was a problem. I mean, I always remember the one, he tried to sign Dean Saunders, didn't he? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story about that when you finish. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> well, this is where sometimes, you know, where the magic 
Dramatically easier as a manager. Yeah. It's a bit like Harry yeah. Catter, who's a different manager in the early 70s, the early 60s, yeah. 10 years of manager. I was talking about this for 10 years at the top. Yeah. I was in 91. He was so sure he was going to get the insurance as he sold Graham Sharp, didn't he? Yeah. The problem was the insurance went to Liverpool. And then he's thinking, I've left myself a problem here because I'm now centre forward short and I've got to look for somebody. Okay, he yeah. got Beardsley, but Beardsley wasn't a replacement for Graham Sharp, was he? Then that left them another problem, and so the team team I always felt lack balance, yeah, in the early nineties, and uh, you know I'm one of those reasons was that the transfer market Howard based was completely different to what I'd been in eighty one to eighty four. Yeah, well, I mean, an indication of that, Howard was so convinced he was going to sign Dean Saunders because Graeme Souness was in charge at Liverpool and you know, Howard was aware that they wanted Mark Rice uh, from Derby County, and Howard wanted Dean Saunders, um, and so you know. Both players, Howard also fancied Mark Wright, Graham Souness also fancied Dean Saunders. And so they came to an agreement, him and Graham, where they said, that, OK, you know, so we'll go for Saunders, you go for Mark Wright. And so they did, until Graham Souness got wind of the fact that Dean Saunders also quite fancied coming to Liverpool rather than Everson. So yeah. Everson were away on pre-season tour. I think they were uh, in Germany somewhere, and Ken Rogers was with them. And um, they were so confident Dean Saunders was signing. His name was printed on a team sheet for the preseason friendly. Everton were playing later <laughs> that day, and so that's that, that's out there somewhere. That'll be a great bit of you know memorabilia for a collector yeah. to get hold of. So it was only when Ken you know had rung the office and they said, "Oh no, no, Saunders is here. He's actually signing for Liverpool." He's what? He's signing for Liverpool? Oh my God! So he goes and tells Howard. Howard goes ballistic. Ken's in his like hotel room. You sit there. You're going to hear what I say to that. And I won't use a language on this, but, you know, how he described Dean Saunders wasn't complimentary. You're going, to hear, you're, you're, you're going to hear what I say to him. And so he tries to ring Dean Saunders, who quite sensibly didn't pick up his phone. And Howard's getting angrier and angrier. And in the end, Ken's like, don't worry, Howard, don't worry. You know, so I accept that you had an agreement. And, that, you know, so he's like turned his back on it. And he's reneged on him. But it was, you know, so Saunders quite fancy turning for Liverpool. Yeah, I, 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 think, <laughs> I think what balanced the scales of Saunders just had to play for Liverpool, hadn't he? Yeah. The 50s, so it was just an emotional thing there. But that, that was just a little bit of bad planning. Yeah. You know, he, yeah, I, I think he, he may have kept Sharpie for another year. I don't know, I don't know whether Greg wanted to go. He could have kept Sharpie for another year. I mean, was, yeah, it was just signing different players. And I, I just, you just felt that. Even after after 12 months of Howard, you're thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure, you know, not so sure now. No, well, it was weird. Well, you talk about the balance. If you remember, we had the two, yeah. what they call the midget gems up front, Peter Beardsley and Morris Johnston. I mean, Joe Johnston wasn't that small, but, you know, so they, they were a small, mobile, um, you know, forward line in the days when English football still pretty much relied on a target man playing golf, yeah. you know, a smaller striker. Leeds won the title with Lee Chapman, you know, sort of leading the line. Arsenal had Alan Smith, you know, so all of the top sides had yeah. a target man. Uh, Everson didn't. And in the end, you know, so Howard was so desperate. He tried to buy Duncan Ferguson, uh, you know, so from, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. from Dundee. Yeah. And that, that didn't quite work off. He ended up going to Rangers. And so we ended up, in the end, going for what he, you know, thought was the best, you know, so next best thing, which was Paul Rydhouse. It, it was an underwhelming signing at the time. A lot of the fans were like, oh, we've been linked with Duncan Ferguson and we've ended up signing, you know, so Rydhouse. Rydhouse turned out to be a very, very good signing for the football club. But it was only half a million at the time, and you know people were a little bit underwhelmed. But it was the balance was completely wrong all over the squad. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That first season of Ken, of Howard being back, uh, finished ninth, trip to Wembley, of course. Um, but in, in, in terms of the context of of, of building, a, you know, building the team that ultimately would start at Wembley in 95, you know, as you said, Rideout came in 92, Hinchcliffe had already already arrived, um, yeah. Matt Jackson had come, um, and of the debuts for, for, for Unzi, you know, he he would start yeah. to he would start to play in the first team. Barry Horn would be yeah. signed as well. Um, so it's it's kind of a, of a strange strange period in the sense that the team as a whole, and as you've said, both of you lack balance. Ultimately, the, the foundations were being laid in a, in a in a strange way for a team that would go and win the FA Cup at the same time. Yeah, I mean, some. I mean, we need to mention Bob the Pole as well, Robert Varsicha, of what what a great signing that was initially. That never quite, you know, sort of ran its course. He came in and everyone was just blown away because his introduction to the team was magnificent. It's like we signed George Best. He just suddenly started, you know, sort of dominating games, and everyone's thinking, "Wow, who is this player?" And for like, very similar to how Yelovich was years later, you know, so hit the ground running for, you know, sort of two or three months and looked like a world beater, and then just disappeared without trace. Just couldn't get any kind of consistency going. And it was, it, it was really, really sad. You know, so that never worked out. But the players, Matt Jackson was a young kid who was brought in. And what he lacked defensively, because he wasn't great as a defender, but he was very, very good going forward. And, um, you know, so that was like one of the cornerstones. Unzi, he came on, you know, in the, towards the tail end of a game at Tottenham and he leathered one in at the far post, scored on his debut. But that was like a fleeting, you know, sort of appearance. He never really came through properly until that 94-95 season. And Barry Horn was very similar to Paul Rideout in one of those slightly underwhelming signings that he'd been around various football clubs, you know, a bit of a journeyman player, if you like. Um, I think, you know, so fans were hoping for a sexier signing. As it was, Barry was great for the football club, you know, so a very, very much underrated player uh, in his time. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think Seifel, just another other point to that is I think one of Howard's problems as well is like players have changed. So Howard's management methods that worked in the early to mid eighties were not going to work ten years later. Players had more power; they had more money for the start. We all know that early nineties. That's when you know fitness regimes were far more stricter. Diets were far more you know, healthier, yeah. you know. So Howard's style of management that has worked at Everton in, in, the, in his first five years were no longer going to work 10 years later. I mean, that's what they always say about Liverpool, isn't it? That soon as that he tried to change things at Liverpool because he'd been abroad and this was the yeah. way forward for English football and that's what all the clubs were doing. It was successful with, with using new methods of, uh, of, of, of training and diet and stuff. And I'm not sure whether that was necessarily Howard's main strength as a manager. So in some respects, by by the early 90s, his methods were probably a little bit out of date. Yeah. Um, as well as like maybe maybe as well as having players who were nowhere near as good mm. uh, as, as they were in the early 80s. And the other thing as well is he had a good crop of youngsters in the early 80s that came through the reserve team. 
we had no youngsters that came through Prano did in the early 90s really apart from maybe one or two well, John Ebrell was the one that everybody attached such huge uh, hopes towards because he'd yeah. been through the uh, English soccer school at Lillishall, which was this fabled, you know, sort of academy <laughs> of like the greatest footballers in the world. And because he'd been an ac- academy graduate of that, people expected something, you know, I don't know, something slightly different to what John was. John was a very good midfielder, yeah. um, but he, he wasn't a goal scorer. He wasn't somebody that would dribble past the player two or three times and, you know, so let the one in. And so people always felt that, you know, they'd expected a bit more, really, on what they were actually seeing. Similar to when we signed John Collins in the Walter Smith era, you know, so people thought he was a different player to what we actually got. Decent yeah. player in what he did, but people just wanted that something a bit different. So, yeah, you're right. There weren't many, you know, so young. Many, I mean, and I've all come through in the late 80s, wasn't it? But in this period, we're talking about 90 to 93. Yeah. You know, eighty to eighty three, we had six or seven players that came through from the way, you know, from the reserve team. We were all really good players who, who won trophies for us. In in the nine, early nineties, we didn't. We, we had mm. nobody. We, all, all the good players in the early nineties, all the good young players went to Liverpool rather than ever, as we well know now. And I don't know if you're ever fans. Yeah. Um, so that was that was the other problem we faced as a club. I mean, we were massively in debt. I think I think three or four million, if I remember. Three or four million in debt, and I think that's why we ended up selling Kilm, wasn't it? Yeah. To, to balance the books. So not only has it got how it got problems on the pitch in terms of rebuilding, the club has got serious financial problems off the pitch. You know, three or four million doesn't sound a lot, but then yeah. there's a massive amount of money. Yeah. Uh, and, and those in gate years, Prenner, what we get in what, 92, 93 average gate, 20,000, something like that. Well, that was the era just before the Premier League when everybody, yeah. you know, so was suffering like that. And yeah, you know, it sounds like, you know, so average gates of what, 20,000? But that was exactly what everybody were getting, you know, so around the Premier League uh, or being around the old first division as was. Um, the, the Premier League, the advent of the Premier League in 1993 did improve things significantly. The game changed uh, massively, uh, but equally it became more of a... a, a a commodity it became more of something you could sell and the makeup of football you know supporters we're getting quite you know so social uh, you know talking about the social change of uh, supporters then but from being a predominantly you know so young male working class sport you know so which it had been throughout the 80s maybe the premier league era you started getting a broader spectrum you started getting more families it became more of a middle class sport you started getting more women going to games and it did change you know so quite significantly and as a result a ten- and just started to rise, and you know, so people started to get, you know, so yeah, on the last sale of the Premier League, but it, it is important. The other, the other financial point to consider, Phil, as well, is the Taylor report in 1990 about clubs having to have all seats of stadium. Stadiums meant that clubs had to spend a lot of money on refurbishing grounds, and that was also a big point. Mm. Yes, good point. Well, let's just a, a quick recap then. So, 1991 finished ninth. 91, 92, 12th, 92, 93, 13th. Yeah. So if we head into what would be 93, 94, um, did we sense that it would be um, that Howard was on, on on borrowed time, that respect that he was under pressure? What was the feeling? No, no, I, I was just my first full season as the Everton correspondent at the Echo. And uh, I remember it very, very well. I'd taken over in the March, the previous season, uh, when we got beat away at Villa and were far too close to relegation for comfort and, you know, so eventually stayed up well, only by three or four points, you know, so it wasn't, you know, you say 13th, but, you know, there wasn't a massive gap between us and the teams that went down. So we needed to make a good start the following season. 
And I always got the impression that it was Howard holding it together. I remember at the time, rightly or wrongly, I was placing all the pressure on the board, uh, you know, so for not generating the funds that, you know, so that Howard needed. Um, we, we won the first three games in 93, 94 um, and made a decent start to the season, but then lost the next three. And then, uh, you know, we drew one, then beat Liverpool, I think, uh, beat them 2 0. And so it was a real up and down season. But I always got the impression that Howard was the one person holding it all together until that fateful day in December against Southampton. You know, so when, I don't know if you want to jump ahead to that, but, mm. you know, so the, the way in which he left the football club, because we played uh, Manchester United on the Wednesday in the League Cup, got beat 2 0, but we were desperate for a target man, for a striker. And Howard had spoken to Alex Ferguson and Dion Dublin was a centre forward in the United squad who broke his leg very early when he signed for United and you know, so couldn't quite get his way back into the team. And Howard inquired about the possibility of signing him. And uh, Ferguson said, yeah, yeah, you know, I think we can, we can let him go. But put a premium on it rather than the million they'd bought him for. I think he wanted one and a half million for him. So Howard went to the board and said, look, we've got a deal here. You know, so we can get Dion Dublin for one and a half million. He knew that the money was there, the money was available, but the board wouldn't let him spend it. Now, they, whether they were questioning his judgment or whether they just thought, you know, so Alex Ferguson was trying to you know, pull a fast one and hold Everson to ransom because they were so desperate for a striker and, you know, so pay half a million over the odds. For whatever reason, they refused to let Howard spend that money. Now, Howard, you could argue, was being quite cute. He'd seen the writing on the wall, realised there was no way he could possibly, you know, sort of turn things around. So took that as an excuse to leave. I don't know. Or maybe he just genuinely felt that his authority had been undermined. But we beat Southampton 1-0. Tony Cotty scored 13,000 was the gate that day. And uh, he gave his post-match press conference, went downstairs. Everyone thought no more of it. Next thing, he emerges again half an hour later and all the national media lads had all gathered in a little pack as they were, you know, so discussing what lines they were going to use for their, their pieces. And Colin Wood from the Mail spotted him first and goes, oh, hello, Howard. And he goes, got something to say. And Colin, oh, say it outside, Howard. Don't want the Sunday papers to hear. And uh, <laughs> Howard was like, no, I'm sorry, this is important. And we all thought, wow, what's going on here? So he came in and just basically said that, I take it you've, uh, you've not been impressed with what you've uh, had to see here today, gentlemen. But I'll be all right. So I'm resigning as manager of Everton Football Club. And I was like, what? And uh, that was it. We resigned him, went downstairs. So everyone's like running around like scalded cats then. We couldn't quite find out what had you know, sort of gone on. Anyway, it ultimately came out over the weekend. It was the Dion Dublin issue. And uh, the, the club was in turmoil. You know, so the manager had gone. None of the players seemed to know quite why or what had happened. Uh, the board weren't making any statements, you know, so to the effect as to why he'd gone. It, it was a real mess, to be honest. What was the reaction, Gav? You know, Preno said there had been elation when he returned. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you'd spoken about, you know, being a gog, <laughs> seeing yeah. it on CFAX. What was the reaction yeah. of, him, of him quitting? Massive. Um, a couple of reflections on that first half of that season. We won our first three games, Preno. But the first home game of the season, I would say in his programme notes, I think we'll surprise a few people this season. He wasn't joking, was he? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, we won our first three games at the top of the table. You know where I found out where, where we were top of the table? I was in Barbados. <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, I remember the, the Dublin thing. Yeah, and I was right there. I think what it was, and the director's gone to see him play. And I think he he had a broken leg, had he, the previous right. year playing for Man United? And I think I think David Marsh said to him that we think he's got a limp. Yes. So. Not going to prove it. I thought, I thought, thought, well, hang on a minute. I've got directors now to tell me about uh, yeah. football players' injuries and abilities and stuff. And I think, yeah, I, I, I fully get where, uh, where he's coming from. 
There was an interesting, don't know who heard it, Colin, Colin in an interview last year said he, he'd heard that Howard may have been getting the bullet anyway, which was quite interesting. That right, Howard yeah. went before yeah. him, yeah, which is quite an interesting, co- which I don't think first, came first out time I'd heard time. that, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was fascinating because there'd been no, even though we were really struggling, there'd be, I mean, we, we were at 13th or so, we weren't massively, like, we were 13th we so, we when Howard yeah, went. Yeah, 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 we weren't, but there'd been no word of Howard being under pressure. Um, and I think there was an acknowledgement that he was working under a lot of financial constraints, certainly. Yeah. And, but Colin, to say that, who obviously would have had a lot of inside knowledge, I thought, well, that was a bit of a bit of a revelation because that certainly wasn't the impression that I got at the, I got at the time that Howard was. Uh, well, was, well, I didn't. Say, not, 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 not in the slightest. Uh, and equally, if if that was the case, you'd imagine that they would have had somebody lined up. You know, more quickly than they did. Yeah, yeah. Because absolutely. we had that appalling spell when Howard had gone, when the club was in limbo, and like no one seemed to know. Jimmy Gabriel took over again, and obviously, you know, in charge of Battlestar Galactica again, and he was here <laughs> heading straight straight for the bloody asteroids with this one. <laughs> because we, uh, I, I think we uh, we lost six of the next seven games. We didn't. We drew nil nil at Sheffield United, I think it was. Then we lost six of seven. Didn't score in any of them until we'd got to uh, Chelsea. Uh, where we got beat 4-2, managed to score two goals on that occasion. And I always remember, you know, so Bill Kenwright was uh, doing Radio Merseyside that day and their fans, you know, so London fans shouting into the other press box, why do you support this lot, Bill? What's going on? Why do you follow this lot? And Bill being Bill, because I love them, because I love them. Well, you know, so he didn't have anything like the influence, you know, so in the, the boardroom that he would later have. And, yeah. you know, they, they had nobody lined up. And, you know, in the end, you know, we, we all know which direction they turned in. And, uh, and we know why they turned in that direction. But it was absolutely, you know, a b- bizarre decision. You know, Mike Walker was the guy that they identified uh, to come in on the basis, purely and simply, that Norwich had won 5-1 at Goodison Park earlier in the season. You know, when Anthony Koku had an absolute, you know, sort of best day of his life, scored four goals. And, uh, you know, so won 5-1. That was when Howard actually had Brett Angel uh, on loan. Yeah. And I took, took one look and said, no, nah, not for us. Uh, you know, so I let Brett go back to South End. In fact, he lost his uh, contact lenses in the game that day and was scrabbling round in the uh, pitch looking for them. People wondering what, what he's doing. No one knew he wore contact lenses. But anyway, yeah. Norwich, Norwich uh, you know, won 5-1 that day. And the previous season, they'd ran Manchester United close for the league. Now, I say yeah. ran them close. They finished second by conceding more goals than they scored. Uh, they were like, yeah. you know, so up and down. But as a result, qualified for the uh, UEFA Cup. Famously, once he won it by Munich, uh, you know, went to the Olympic Stadium, beat by Munich 2 1, got beat on there on the second leg, uh, but, you know, went through on the away goals. And so that caused a huge stir in English football. Wow, little Norwich, you know, sort of beat, yeah. beat by Munich away. They got knocked out in the very next round by Inter Milan, but no one seemed to think about that. It was just like, oh, yeah, there must be, you know, this incredible tactical genius, Mike Walker, who was like overseeing this victory over Bayern Munich. It was a very naive way of thinking. And if you looked into it any, you know, more close than that, you'd realize that his credentials didn't really stack up. But because they played an easy on the eye brand of football and because he'd beaten Bayern Munich, he was the guy that Emerson turned to. Yeah, I mean, I think Pando were losing at that point there is do the thing 1994 around this time. This is when we had John Moore died, hadn't he, in the September, hasn't it? Something like that. So we've got like sort of a, a vacuum of ballroom level now, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, which was always going to be difficult to, uh, you know, difficult to manage under, mm. you know. So that was that was interesting. I mean, I mean, you know, you were you were doing the the reports job at the time. Um, 
what were your first impressions of Mike Walker? <laughs> um, I'll choose my words carefully here. He's, um, <laughs> he, he was having himself. I think that's one thing to say. I mean, mm. um, he, he turned up immaculately presented, um, insisted on having the initials MW painted on a car, on the uh, car parking space in the car park, which Mark Ward just took as a challenge straight away. His initials are obviously MW. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to park there as well. So I, I went down and obviously we had the, uh, the situation in place there whereby we would speak to the manager every single day. And uh, it was something that, you know, Ken Rogers has started with, um, with Howard. And it was great, you know, so we were, we were privileged and I accept that. Uh, so we'd go down, we would spend, you know, 10 or 20 minutes chatting to the manager, go back to the office and write the story. And Mike Walker was happy to continue with that arrangement, which I was delighted with. But whilst you were talking to him, you got the impression that he didn't really quite have any kind of, you know, sort of plan in place. And if you talked to him long enough, he ended up contradicting what he'd ended up you know, starting to tell you about. He wanted this very easy on the eye brand of football. I think Vinny Samways was one of his first signings. He brought Brett Angel in. And again, to me, that indicates, you talk about a boardroom vacuum. You didn't quite know who was making the decisions at the time. Because uh, Now, this may or may not be the case, but we were told at the time that Mike Walker had arrived and said to Jim Greenwood, the secretary, Brett Angel, you know, so I don't mind him. You know, so I quite, quite, you know, so like the look of him. You know, if you get the opportunity, see what you can do. So Jim Greenwood did what Jim Greenwood did went and bought him, you know, so 500 grand. And I remember it, uh, Ian Ross, who later went to work for Everton, uh, was part of the national press back at the time. He was at Belfield and uh, they'd done their briefing with Mike Walker. Uh, they'd left, uh, Ian had left, he jumped in his car, drove away, he turned the radio on and the radio, Everton have just uh, signed Brett Angel from Southend, 500 grand. So we thought the other press guys had like done the dirt on him and not told them. So he goes driving back in again. A state of you lot, you know, so hiding that from me. So hiding what from me? They've signed Brett Angel. Well, we don't know about it. So they went and knocked on Mike Walker's door. Going, Excuse me, we just had a press briefing. You didn't tell us you signed Brett Angel. And Mike was taken unawares. Uh, oh, oh uh, so has that been finalised, has it? I genuinely think he didn't know that the club had actually gone ahead and signed him. So brought Brett Angel back to the club. You know, that underlined, you know, so the lack of clarity in thinking at the club on a boardroom level. And Mike was just out of his depth, I think. Um, you know, he loved the idea of, you know, sort of managing a football club like Everton. But he never really had, you know, sort of the full respect of the players. Uh, they were used to, you know, sort of Howard and the way Howard would run the football club. And my, my first, you know, we'll, we'll get onto it in a future podcast, I'm sure. But my first full pre-season on tour uh, with Mike Walker, 94, 95. Oh, my word. It, it was like going on holiday on like a, a stag weekend. It was, uh, it, it was madness. Uh, so it, it was, it was a, a really, really weird appointment. And from the start of that season, January, I think um, we'd Swindon at home 6-2 in his first home game, uh, league game. I think we got knocked out of the FA Cup by Bolton in his first uh, home game as manager. But Swindon, they were the worst team the Premier League I think has ever seen. Uh, they conceded 100 goals that season. And we beat them 6-2. But for an hour, they were the best side. Uh, it was 2-2. And it was only when Andy Much got sent off that we suddenly got a stranglehold on the game. Um, you know, so I managed to win that one. Then beat Chelsea 4-2. Uh, Brett Angel scored his only goal. And that was a poor Chelsea team. But then slid like an absolute you know, sort of stone. Uh, and we just couldn't get any kind of... Uh, pattern to our play, any kind of a stranglehold on games. It, it was a dreadful second half of that season, it really was, which is why I thought that Howard was the only thing holding it together. And once he'd gone, the club just imploded. It, it, was, it was a dreadful end to the season. It obviously ended in that uh, famous stroke, infamous Wimbledon game. Well, Gav, <laughs> May, May the 7th, 1994, obviously um, 
a significant game in, in Everton's history for, in many ways, as Prentice says, the wrong reasons, but ultimately the right result. Um, could you could you believe that we'd gone into a final game of the season in that situation? Uh, I could believe it. I haven't seen us since January. We were just dreadful. I mean, it was, it was just hopeless. Uh, we've been we've been poor for four or five months. We got beat three 0 at Leeds. Had me playing the last yeah. away game. Uh, I think, and he just thought we're down here. There's four or five clubs who would have gone down on the last day. I think there was Oxford, which Sheffield United, um, one or two others were, were all in the mix to to go down and hold him with the other one, maybe. Um, so but we're, we're down there at the bottom because we deserve to be, because we've been poor since the opening sort of month of the season. It was appalling. I mean, that end of the season, I, I remember Graham Stewart, who's now a, a club ambassador. Had, uh, had moved in just around the corner from me and I became very friendly with Graham. And so I got a little insight into, you know, so how things were going, you know, the training ground and stuff. And uh, I always remember this. He, he told me we were having a pint in the grapes around the corner. And uh, that was a season where we couldn't score penalties. If I remember Tony Cotty had missed a couple, you know, so it rotated a few times. And he said, you know, so guess who's on pens? And I said, no idea. I went through the list. He goes, me. He says, I can see what's going to have to happen now. I'm going to have to score to keep us up, and my backside's going to be going. <laughs> and you know, so you know, when we got through to that Wimbledon game, uh, that went through my head because it was a surreal period. I mean, as Gav says, we got battered at Leeds three 0 went to the final home game of the season, knowing that even if we won, we weren't definitely guaranteed safety. We needed to get results elsewhere, also, and it was a horrendous atmosphere. Uh, in the build-up to the game. Uh, we were getting phone calls at the Echo all week from people that desperately and genuinely needed psychological support. They thought that, you know, so Emerson were going to get relegated and they were looking for us for reassurance and we couldn't give it to them. You know, it's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. We're not going to go down. And we genuinely couldn't give them that support. And then everybody knows what happened. I mean, Ian Wright chose it as uh, one of his games to remember on Match of the Day the other night. And it was, it was great watching it again in hindsight. But the whole football world felt that way. This is Everton. Surely Everton can't go down. And if you remember, uh, the night before the game, the Wimbledon team bus had been torched at the Lord Dursbury Hotel. Uh, the fans had gone down there. And it was to make a point, say, look, don't you dare turn up on that day and do what Wimbledon do, which is be the eternal party poopers. Uh, so that, that Wimbledon team coach was torched almost as a sign. That didn't bother Wimbledon. This was the Wimbledon, the crazy gang. They came. And uh, I think John Fashion was suspended, so he wasn't playing. But, you know, otherwise it was the crazy gang. Um, you know, Anders had his little meltdown and, you know, so sort of handled the ball. Then we conceded that ridiculous own goal. And I always remember that plaintive scream from the girl coming from the Gladys Street as the ball's looping towards the net. And it was, it was horrific. It was like silence apart from that scream. And you just thought, oh my God, you know, we are going down here. Um, and then obviously the penalty. And I say, when I saw, no one knew who was going to take it because Neville, uh, Wimbledon were dis disgusted by the award of the penalty because Anders so clearly dived over Peter Fear's challenge. Great dive, by the way. But, you know, so the referee was hoodwinked, pointed to the spot. And uh, Wimbledon was so annoyed, they booted the ball down the pitch. So Neville picked it up and Neville started marching down the pitch, holding it. And we all thought, wow, Neville's going to take the penalty. And he would have done because that was what Neville was like. <laughs> and in the end, Diamond walked towards him and took the ball off him on the halfway line. And there was a smattering of applause around the ground from people like saying, wow, he's got the balls to take this. Because so make no mistake, that is the most important penalty kick in Everson's history, bar none. Um, he, hasn't, he doesn't score that, we get relegated. Who knows where the club would be now? So puts the ball on the spot. And he only told me afterwards... The only one he'd taken previously was for Chelsea and he'd skied it over the bar. So he'd never scored a penalty. 
anyway, it was perfect. You know, so Hans Seegers went one way, the ball went the other. We're back in the game. The roar was primeval. Uh, you know, the park end was down then. They were rebuilding the park end stand. And you could just see fans hanging from the trees trying to get a vantage point. It was ridiculous. Second half, an hour gone, we're still relegated because the game was drifting and the results elsewhere weren't going our way. And it was really, really weird. I mean, Barry scored that goal out of nothing. It was an absolutely wonderful goal. Uh, just leathered it in from 25 yards. That was the equaliser. That still wasn't enough either. We're still getting relegated. And it was only when, and everyone says, oh, Hans Seegers, you know, sort of took a bung. Hans Seegers dived. He didn't. I think he, he, Graham was like going in for a block tackle on the edge of the penalty area. And I don't think anybody anticipated the shot. It spun a little bit crazy. And Hans Seegers just misjudged it. It went in, and the scenes were absolutely ridiculous. And even then, at the end of the game, I'm waiting to file a report to the Football Echo to say that Everton are safe, and I didn't know that we were, because we'd lost sight of the fact that Sheffield United, uh, they'd been getting beat 2-0 by... Oh, sorry, they were beating Chelsea 2-0, and we thought, oh, well, you know, they're safe. You know, We'd lost sight of them. I knew that Oldham uh, was still a draw. Ipswich and Blackburn, Blackburn was still a draw. We thought, wow, you know, so Everton's still a down. And I could see people celebrating. I'm thinking, I can't file my copy now because I don't know. And it was Phil McNulty who was sat next to me who had a radio on, just started screaming, no, we're safe, we're safe. How? He goes, Sheffield United have lost. Chelsea have scored in the last minute. It was that close. And so I was able to like bark a few paragraphs down the line and then just like breathe out the biggest sigh of relief ever. It was a horrible afternoon that no one ever wanted to go through again. Unfortunately, it, we did four years it, later. It was. It was, a, it was a strange afternoon. And Wimbledon were a good team as well. They finished sixth that season. Yeah. And they weren't yeah. like the, uh, the up and under team that they were in the 80s. They had some really good players playing for them then, didn't they? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was the, the game is infamous, obviously, because it was sort of brought up, wasn't it, later on in the year with the Bung scandal. When, when, the, yeah. uh, when that broke in the late, late 94, um, that was... I remember listening to Radio 5 that night and said they were amazed that at no point on the first day they, that when the Bung scandal story broke was the Everton Wimbledon game mentioned once, you know, and it, it's infamous for that. But, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think that, that Stewart thing was just, his third goal was just unexpected as a keeper, yeah. don't you? It was a clearance and he blocked it. And Sagers was always going to be maybe a yard too slow as a consequence, wasn't he? Uh, and if you think about his performance earlier in the game, Sega's made some very good stops prior to yeah, that. If you're going to throw a game, you don't leave it till 12 minutes from the end. That's cutting it a bit close, I think, if you're yeah. sort of trying to yeah. throw a game. It was, it's, it's always been uh, in the, the contentious uh, bit, hasn't it, that, that game? But, yeah, we, we, we got lucky. I, I did, funny enough, I, I did speak to uh, one speech for Sheffield United player who got relegated that <laughs> day. And yeah. they said they went to the airport the next day. And that is what they told me. He said that they, 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 they spoke to somebody involved in in, in from um, from that game. And he said that game yesterday was fixed. Now I don't know whether that's oh, true or not. It's no. just hard. But I, I find it strange. But it's just it was the coach thing, wasn't it? That was the whole yeah. thing was surreal. It was a surreal couple of days, you know. Because yeah. I don't think having to be in that be fifty odd years, won't it? Since or forty odd years since having to be in that position, we were playing yeah. away from home, wasn't it? Fifty one. I think it's probably the only time we've ever played at Goodison. Where we've needed the results at that stage to, to stay up, you know. Um, yeah. But it was surreal. And, and fair, I mean, Diamond, that took some bottle at it, didn't it? To be fair, that penalty. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, it was, yeah. it was just such a perfect penalty as well. You know, so keeper went one way, tucked away just inside the post. It, it was, it, it was horrible. It's just a really, really weird afternoon. And everyone always talks about, you know, 
greatest atmospheres they've ever heard, etc., etc. And the Bayern Munich always comes into it quite rightly. Uh, the United game when Duncan Ferguson scored the dive and had a Fiorentina. Uh, but for me, I genuinely think the noise that afternoon, and there were only 31,000 there because the park didn't yeah, exist. Yeah. It was primeval, the noise that day. It meant so much to so many people. And it was, people were just like absolutely in bits everywhere. It, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And, uh, but, you know, an incredible, you know, sort of denouement to it, if you like. Uh, not something I ever wanted to experience again. And unfortunately, I did only four years later, which was equally as bad. Uh, but it was, it was, it, it, it's, it's looked at now as being one of those, you know, sort of great Premier League games because of the circumstances. But Everson should never have been in a position like that. And for a number of reasons, they were, you know, so from Howard going from the, the boardroom upheaval, uh, from like the players that have been brought in and allowed to go. Lots and lots of things went wrong with the football club in a, a period or two. Yeah. Generally, lessons weren't really learned. Mm. Um, no, I mean, there's a, sorry, there's a question to ask, isn't it? Whether Walker should have been given the bullet. He should have been that yeah. summer. Well, you yeah. know, having only given him the job in January, you yeah. couldn't have done that. You had to give him a closed season to bring yeah. in players. And he did. And that, that was where, you know, he brought in Vinnie Samways. Uh, he brought in Daniel Amakachi. But again, this was because he had this idea in his head of this Everson team playing wonderful, free-flowing football. And yet he neglected the actual, you know, sort of basis, the platform. He ended up having to play Barry Horn as a right wing back in one game. Uh, at home to Coventry because he didn't have, you know, so sufficient defenders, you know, so at the football club. Um, like I said, that pre-season was just all over the place. It was, it was absolutely, you know, so nightmarish to witness, you know, so what was going on there. And the start of the season was appalling. And it was and still is the worst start to a season ever seen them ever made in the club's history. Um, was it seven points from the first 13 games? It was, yeah. it was it was well, horrendous. How the hell? I mean, Joe Royal winning the FA Cup is you know so will always be you know so on his Everton scroll of honour. But keeping Everton in the Premier League should be higher than that because that was a miracle act, absolute miracle act to rescue the club from where they were. Gav, yeah, no, uh, no, no tears shed when in November Mike Walker was relieved of his duties. No, no. I mean, we've been planning to do a piece on this couple of months ago, didn't we? And I was saying it was that bad at the start of the 94-95 season. Eamon Holmes was on national television, I think, <laughs> one, of the, one of these game shows or something. You know, the oldest joke in the book, you know, what's the difference between a triangle and Everton, you know? And uh, and the the the, th- the feeling was he'd lost the dressing room, hadn't he, Ben? Uh, yeah. I tell you what, he brought Joe Parkinson in as well, though, didn't he, Mike? Joe Parkinson and Anders Limpar on deadline day at the end of the But by by the time he gets to November, he, I mean, I think he did a piece in the Echo saying why he should keep his job. That he, I think he got five points in three games or something yeah. before he was getting the sack. And he was, uh, but he was on borrowed time. He was, but the, the, crowd, the crowd hadn't turned on him. The crowd was still yeah. quite supportive. They wanted him to succeed. And again, there'd been major boardroom upheaval again in the summer of 94 because Peter Johnson had gone head-to-head with Bill Kenwright in a bid to try and take over the football club. And Peter Johnson basically had more money. And so, you know, so he ended up winning that battle. So he inherited uh, a manager, you know, so in Mike Walker and gave him money to spend. But I suppose, you know, so one of the few things we can be grateful to Peter Johnson for is that, you know, so he, having inherited that manager, decided very, very quickly that he wasn't good enough and needed to be sacked. And the actual turning point 
was there because Mike Walker was convinced he'd turned things around. We've got a streaky one nil win at home to West Ham. It was the streakiest win you've ever seen. Then went to Norwich and it was the direst nil nil draw you've ever seen. But because we kept back to back clean sheets, Mike Walker was right. That's it. We've got it cracked. But the board who watched the game that night went into the director's lounge at Carrow Road and said, oh my God, you know what the one common denominator is here? Mike Walker created both of those football teams and they decided there and then that, you know, so he had to go. And it was an international break as well. It was a fortnight break, so it gave them a little bit of breathing space. And so they took the decision to sack him. And then, you know, so as you know, Big Joe was the man that they turned to. Yeah, that was, that was bonfire night, that wasn't it, I think, yeah. uh, the Norwich game. Yeah. I, what I remember at the time is, I mean, Ben Howard had got the job in 1990 and 93. There was quite a lot of contenders, you know, for the job. Yeah. So when... So, so when Walker got it, they were talking Joe Royal, Peter Reid, Steve Coppel. By the time you get to like 94, when Walker gets the bullet in November 94, the number of contenders is, was actually very small. I, mean, yeah. I remember Ron Atkinson was linked again. Yeah. He's managed in Aston Villa, and he just had the vote of confidence. From the <laughs> board, you know? yeah. Which is not, yeah. not an ideal way to move clubs, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so you get to that point in the manager, and there's absolutely nobody apart from Joe that I think he could have appointed. And Joe maybe should have got the job in 90, probably. Because yeah. yeah. I, I, I still think, by the way, going back to how should never have come back to Everton, but that's for a different uh, podcast. Yeah. But yeah, but I think uh, I think Joe Joe was probably the only choice, if I recall, that we could have made that was probably made sense and could, you know, placate the fans. Because there was a dearth of, uh, dearth of outstanding candidates, I think, for us then. Yeah, very much so. Okay, chaps. Well, we will leave it there and we will pick up on the appointment of Joe Royal, uh, his immediate impact, and then what came post-Joe and for the remainder of the decade uh, in the second part of the pod, which we will do next week. But uh, thank you very much. That's been uh, fascinating. Over an hour, I think we've been uh, delving (laughs) back into a a rather (laughs) miserable period of uh, Everton's recent history anyway. uh, (laughs) Plenty to talk about, plenty in there that I didn't know, plenty I'm sure people are listening didn't know, uh, players we missed out on, managers that maybe could have come and didn't, and and uh, loads of uh, interesting uh, backstory. So uh, thank you very much again, and thank you very much for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.